Gareth. How's it going, man? Good, good, Jerry, it, man. It's been a while. It has. I think the last time I saw you, we were on the highway going 120 miles an hour. Correct. You pulled up next to us and we had a phone conversation. I was hooting and hooting and I wound up my window, I was waving and screaming and shouting and I think eventually... I got a bit tense, not going to lie to you. <laughs> like, who the hell is this person? Hooting like a madman at you on the freeway, yeah. It's craziness, man. Yeah. How's life? Life's good, eh? Work's pretty jammed, which is nice. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had a waiting list for the last two, three months. The oh. COVID's been good, good to us. I think people's stress levels and drinking and using just accelerated mm. with, with the stress and... Uh, so yeah. for people listening, I mean, so what exactly is work then? If, if there's, because if, if I'm listening to this, I don't know, COVID caused a waiting list, yes. what is this? Yeah, um, I've run an intervention company for the last 10 years before I moved up to Joburg three years ago. I've worked in the addiction field for 25 years and we've got 66 beds throughout the system that changes addiction treatment centers. Uh, yeah. The main ones here in Northcliffe, we've got one in Ramsach and a couple of halfway houses. So essentially we've got the full continuum of care. So we do okay. detox and primary care and secondary care and just help people to Is this like a rehab addiction. center? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a proper full-on, fully licensed addiction treatment facility, yeah. And I can imagine, I mean, I speak to a therapist a couple of weeks ago and we're talking about the mental health aspect of COVID. People must have lost it. Yeah, it was interesting. From your point of view, I mean, what you found. What, what really struck me was how resourceful alcoholics and addicts can be because you couldn't leave the house, so you couldn't go and score, you couldn't go right. and buy alcohol, the alcohol was not being sold. So there was all of this black market back-end stuff going on that people yeah, yeah. made a lot of money. In fact, there was the, one of the main cigarette suppliers was Zuma's nephew or something, hey? The, those grey cigarettes, whatever yeah, yeah, they were yeah. called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was selling this horrible Pakistani and all these kind of smokes that are going to kill you by Christmas, but hey, sure. you've got your nicotine. It's, if I look, there's two or three guys in my office that smoke, and during that time, we came out of lockdown three or whatever, just when we opened. And these guys, they would also, they would have like this Bosporat in the office and they're like, okay, who's going to get this because we're fucking losing our minds. Yeah. It was bizarre. Yeah. And alcohol? Alcohol, I've got a doctor friend who actually was saying I can't get any wine, I can't get any wine. Yeah. Of course, I won't say any names. But there's a colleague I work with whose father owns a chain of restaurants. Mm. So she arranged for me to get the alcohol. Yeah. And it came in a big white box full of bread rolls on top of the bottles. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I took them to the doctor's office and dropped them off. She was immensely grateful. Yeah. I think, that, I mean, even just the resourcefulness of people. We had a, it was New Year's, but I can't remember what year. It must be 20, when did it? COVID started 2020? 2019. That, 2019. So that New Year's, we had a get-together. So John and my partner come from Bedford View, and there was a curfew for like 10 or whatever yeah. So he arrives with his, with his camera bag, because we're in the safari industry, camera bag, and he's, you can check this oak's cleaning. He's proud, man. Like, oh, what are you going to get you a drink? No, 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 wait, 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 I'm going to show you. John, no, just chill. So he takes out, so on the top, he's got two camera bodies with lenses, takes us out. There's a little pod, which lenses normally come in. There's two bottles of wine. Yeah. Another one underneath, and underneath there's six pack packed in. Wow. And he was desperate for someone to pull him over. Because you wanted to show how good the system you're, was with the lenses. My, you can't find my stuff. No, it's bizarre. How was COVID for you? You worked throughout because you must have had an essential permit then. Worked all the way through. In fact, I had an essential permit to travel to Cape Town at one point, which was lovely. Nice. Um, and I was on my motorcycle and the third roadblock, yeah. the cops were saying, listen, the third set of cops were saying to me, there's no cameras, no speed traps between here and Cape this Town. Is the, the cop feel told you this? To, yeah, feel free to Thanks, blitz Tommy. as fast as you like. Pommy, how are you? Pommy's our favorite waiter here at uh, a uh, specific uh, chosen restaurant. 100%. I missed you. It's been a long time. <laughs> Two years, maybe. <laughs> Can I also get a Coke? Yeah. 
Thanks, Pommy. Thank you, sir. Pommy, is this Ceylon or Roibos? Ceylon. Ceylon. Thank you. You can have that one, Pommy. That's yours, bro. <laughs> uh, small one's fine. We can mix it with pizza, yeah. Yeah. No, just bring whatever it's yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Pom. So, so, did the cops on your way to Cape Town, did they stop you at each border? No, the roadblocks are pretty random. Yeah. And uh, it was an interesting trip. Like the night before, I'm on a bike trip. I, I, I struggled to sleep. I'm like uh -huh. a school kid off in a scout camp the next oh, day. Oh, man. So I toss and turn, and I wake up very early. I woke up at about 5, and I thought, well, I'm not going to lie anymore. Showered, got dressed, and I left the house around the corner here yeah. at 5 to 6. You're doing this on your ace? Yeah. Yeah. Best trips. Oh, man. Can Tell sometimes be a lot. Yeah. Oh. So I head off, and I'm going down the freeway, and I realize, fuck, it's cold. Eh? Yeah. I mean, it's really cold. I've got the normal bike. What time jacket, is this? Protective. What, what, was it winter? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I think it was beginning of July. Okay. It's cold. Yeah. I'm heading down the freeway, and I glance out, of, and there's no cars, of course, because it's COVID, it's lockdown, but I've got my travel permit, I'm happy. Mm. And I see on the left-hand side, there's a river that right. is frozen. So I stop, I turn around to take some pictures. Yeah, in <clears throat> It was just past... Um, Free State side. Yeah. Yeah? It's cold. Holy so I hell. turn around to take a pic. I'm driving back up the wrong way on yeah, the yeah. freeway, which is entirely safe because there's no cars out. <laughs> I turn around, park the bike the right way in case anybody comes. I'm taking some pics of the frozen river. And I glance yeah. over in the dashboard of the bike. There's a big snow icon. And I look at the temperature. It's minus two. Now, minus two with the wind chill factor, minus, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, freezing. And I took out my phone, phone to take the picture and it wouldn't work. It wouldn't switch on. Is it too cold? So, so I'm figuring, yeah, yeah, the, 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 the temperature at which your phone stops working must be minus one. That's cool. Or minus two. Because, I mean, if you could, so now I'm going back to my guiding days. There's something called the Beaufort wind scale. Yeah. And if, if I remember correctly, for every, for every seven kilometers of wind speed, the, the field temperature drops by one. Wow. So you, you're not going 10 miles an hour on your no. bike. Do the math. That's proper cool. I remember to pry my fingers off the no. throttle and the gear lever. To Is that the coldest one. you've ever been? Pardon? Is that the coldest you've ever been? I have no idea. Been? I suppose that's the coldest recorded I've ever been. Yeah. <clears throat> I was addicted as a teenager and I remember one night I was out with this guy and we both said, like, I'd, I'd said I'm going to sleep at his house and he'd said I'm going to sleep at my oh, right, house. Right, right. So we had a free night out. But it was the winter. And we ended up spooning each other in front of this really bright light, trying to stay warm. It was yeah. so cold. Out on the streets, eh? That yeah. Is, that is, that's cold. That's real. Yeah. Jesus, you know, man. You know, as, as a teenager, you do what you've got to do to get high, you know? How resourceful were you in the day? I was pretty... Because like you were saying earlier on, you were amazed at COVID and how resourceful people yes. got to get their fix or whatever it might be. I mean, do you think with technology has changed from when you were those days to now. Text someone, message yeah. someone. Yeah, you you had to kind of be FaceTime. Yeah, listen, back in my day, there were those phones that had a little dial-up and it was click, 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 click. It would make a noise oh, per no. number. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those round ones. And it was, there was a wire attached. The yeah, wire yeah. went into the wall and sure. outside onto a phone line. Like, I don't know if the kids that are listening to this will remember. Probably not. That thing was called a landline. Yeah. You kids today have it easy. Nothing. Pick up your cell phone, text Mr. Delivery, and he drops off the cocaine. Sure. Lucky <laughs> bastards. <laughs> wow, man. Jeez. Yeah. That's I was, insane. I was thinking, I actually just saw um, a friend now, and I, I, I would pay any price to keep using Jerry. I, I sold my family down the river. I sold mm. school after school How down the river. How old were you now? I, I drank in between 13 and 21. 
Okay. I'm just turned 50. Mm-hmm. So I joined the wonderful world of drugs and alcohol at 13 and cleaned mm-hmm. up at 21. And during those eight years, I left home mainly just seeking degrading and humiliating experiences is the best way I can Looking put it. Looking back at it. Yeah, I mean, it was terrible. It was terrible. How, and, and we're going to jump all over, but how did you get to a point personally or did someone say to you, listen, you've got to get your shit together? Or did you one day sit somewhere and you just think this is fucked up? How did, how did you start the journey to get out and better? I guess the journey was slow and it started um, in rehab. I met this guy called Doug who weighed 140 kilos, had hands like spades and sausages yeah, yeah, yeah. like fingers and a big beard like a bush. And he was, I, I knew from what he was saying that he was cut from the same cloth, that yeah. he'd been addicted, he'd experienced right, similar right, kind right. of troubles and he had somehow made a journey to get out of it. And um, so that I think was the start, but uh, I, uh, I was 18 and I went to rehab and I had sex in every rehab, I was in a smuggled drugs and I had my first shot of heroin in the girl's bathroom in a rehab. And so, so the staff, yeah, I think they liked me to a point, but I was quite a handful. Okay, sounds like it. Yeah, it was a bit of a mess. And um, Is it, so, sorry, the thing hmm. you say, so I mean, you go to rehab and then there's still all these things happening. There's people who believe that a prison is not great because you put the worst of the worst together and they come up with even worse plans. Is rehab the same? Or it was is. it the same? <clears throat> is it, was it? There's always that danger, and I deal with families today who are concerned about putting their young loved one in treatment because they're going to meet people that are much older, whose addictions are far more progressed, yeah. and that can have a negative impact on them. That's a potential reality. Don't think about that. Eh? Someone goes in for weed addiction, for example, and suddenly there's a guy doing meth and heroin, and they... Is this reality? Yeah, sure. And they get friendly and they go out and they use together. But you have to understand that that young guy who's just addicted to weed, weed is one of the worst drugs that we see. The psychosis is horrendous. Weed is a terrible drug. Everybody's now onto edibles and gummies and all these things. CBD for others and then THC. I mean, people don't seem to think so. The CBD doesn't have any of the THC in it, which is the intoxicating effect. And it's been proven to have some beneficial... Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's not something that I would risk risk taking because I would be scared that it would set in motion a chain of events that I would change colour and grow horns and be back out there drinking, using and running the streets. um, But weed these days is about 250 times stronger than the weed that I was smoking 25 or 30 years ago. And um, so the psychosis we see from Dacha is horrendous. Really? Horrendous. Dacha and meth are the worst, but... But the pot is so severe, Jerry. I mean, we just pulled a guy off his mother's roof about a week ago. He was yeah. up there, he wouldn't get down. The chopper was coming to fetch him. And he kept calling the mom saying, you got my money, the 98 million US dollars. I want my money, I want my money. I'm going calling to his mom with that. Yeah. yeah. There, we have people, there was a kid in Cape Town a couple of years ago who was so terrified, just on pot, just smoking dacha. He was yeah. so terrified that they were coming to get him. He jumped over the electric fence and the barbed wire and the stuff oh, over God. house after house after house and he ran up Table Mountain. He was cut to shreds. So, so, so okay, I'm coming from a very, I'm not, not understanding this. People talk about weed that takes you up and take you down. So there's sativa and indica, wasn't yeah. it? And the one is apparently making you very chill and the other one makes you, but surely if someone has a reaction and they go into the psychosis or it makes them paranoid squirrel, is there a difference between those things? Well, the, the weed up and the these down days and the <clears throat> has apparently been bred to provide more 
Avrapam or Bedana. But when someone crosses that line into being psychotic, they've mm. lost touch with reality. Mm. So they, and the worst thing is they're not even aware that they're psychotic. Everybody else is wrong. My perception is perfect. Oh, yeah, this is correct. my reality. Yeah. The chopper's coming. They get fear. Mom, you owe me the 98 million. They're furious, seething. They'll attack their mother. Jeez. And that's, that's just insane. an everyday, that's an everyday. So event. is that the most of the people that comes through through change and all that? It's it's weed mostly. No, no. What's your, what's your biggest? Is it alcohol? We we don't currently. We've just begun to keep some stats. Yeah. Uh, I think the alcohol is something because it's legal and socially acceptable. I think it's something that underpins a lot of folks' addictions. Leads too. Yeah, weed and alcohol, and then there's all the coke, cats, meth on top of that. You know. Did did for, for your. I mean, your addiction when it started, was it based on alcohol first or was it something else? What led you there? I smoked alcohol and... So I smoked alcohol. I smoked pot and... <laughs> I, dipped the, I dip, dipped the pot in the alcohol and let it dry out and smoked it. No, I'm kidding. Wow. No, you no, just no, gave I'm people kidding. ideas now. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> <laughs> I smoked pot and drank alcohol the first night I'd used. Um, and it was fantastic. Mm. Oh, my God. Both of being At 13 years old. Huh? Yeah. Mm. I think before that I always had a higher than normal level of anxiety and social anxiety and scared of people and and I went from we had just moved to Parktown from mm. Discovery. You from Johannesburg originally? Grew up here, yeah. Okay. Don't don't hold it against me, Jerry. No, same, same. Can't, I can't. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah, condolences, yeah. Mate. yeah. Like, that's terrible. <laughs> it's what it is, man. <laughs> so we moved to Parktown and there were a couple of older guys in the street and Within a few nights of us being there, they had invited my older brother and I out for a drink. Yeah. So we went down to the Mill Park. Uh, there was a bar at the bottom. There was a Holiday Inn, I think it was. And we had a couple of drinks, and the bar was closing, so we bought a six-pack and we left. We walked back up the road uh, to Parktown, mm. and someone pulled out some pot and rolled it, and we smoked. And I went from feeling awkward and self-conscious and to feeling fucking bulletproof. Oh, really? Bulletproof. Like, I mean, instantaneous. Is it, is it instant? I found like I'd found the magic elixir, the, the, the potion that Oblix had been dropped into as a baby. Uh-huh. It was like prior to that, my life was black and white. And now it was Suddenly 4D, like, technicolor, boom. Holy hell. Everything, everything changed yeah. instantly. And that sense of confidence lasted for probably three or four months. Three months? Three or four months. And then Were I you had using to all the time through then to keep that going? I used from that night every single day that I wasn't in rehab yeah. until I was 21. And I ended up staying on the streets for six months. I moved in with my dealer in Tembisa, yeah. being shot at by the good guys and the bad guys. It wasn't pretty. And then eventually I just got so scared. I, was, I guess I was given a gift of fear and desperation. Sure. And, um, so, but but I'm, I'm trying to understand this. I mean, I find it so just, I mean, people might know, I'm, my background comes from psychology. I've started a coaching business. This stuff fascinates me because there's human nature and that we can learn from. So, I mean, so you had that first night, that very first joint that night. Yeah. Woke up the next morning thinking, what? Fuck, I need that. Or was it, was it, was it a desperation or was it like, a, like I'm going to get more of that? What, what was it? I was an addict waiting to happen. So a couple of years before I mm. smoked that, I heard something on a radio show about pot and mm. dacha. And my best mate at the time was Paul. He was a year or two older. So I went to Paul and said, Paul, let's ask some of the gardeners and let's, let's, let's try ask this for thing. some pot. Mm. And he lamed, me, uh, he lamed me on the arm, punched me, I had a numb arm. And I thought, well, okay, I won't be fucking asking you. Yeah. And I waited, divided my time and I found it. And then 
It wasn't like I woke up the next morning with this mental obsession and this physical compulsion. Like a to drive to get it. No, it wasn't like that. I was just so happy I'd found it. I was going to go and get some more. Mm -hmm. And I went and got some more. There was no danger. Like I knew that the school board and the parents and all of the public service announcements bullshit say, saying that drugs are bad was nonsense. They just wanted to keep this shit for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I was in, I just absolutely loved it. And it worked, it worked very well yeah. for a number of months. And they had to continue to up the amounts to try to achieve the same effect, that, that confidence and that. In fact, I was at a school dance, I must have been six months into this adventure. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we're young, I mean, the girls were on one side and the boys were yeah, on the yeah. other. And we were all terrified to go over and say, sorry, uh, uh, excuse me, okay, do you want to dance? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it was like that in the beginning. I walked outside, I had a, I was some beer and some pot, and I walked back and I walked straight over the hall, Jerry. No, you're a fucking straight hero. Over the hall. Yeah. Straight up. Straight up to her. The girl I thought was the nicest. Mm. And I asked her to dance. And if she had declined, if she had refused, mm. I had a snappy one liner instantly in the back of my head. I would have said something like, oh, You must have misheard me. What I actually said was, Your ass looks really fat in those pants. Yo. <laughs> so I instantly had a retort yeah. for a possible rejection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt like I instantly had these tools and these skills and the socializing like you said, ability. Bulletproof. Yeah, bulletproof. So, I mean, there's, there's this perception of a lot of people who, if someone's smoking weed or if someone's on drugs, they're not with their full senses. Doesn't sound like it, because you're switched on. You might have, you might be in your own reality. Your your reality is slightly different to mine. But still, you're not, you're not in a fog, you're kind of... No, super sharp. Yeah. On the ball, attentive, hyper-vigilant, aware, loving it. Does it affect sex drive? Depending on the drug, depending on the advancement of like the Like for addiction. you at the time, as the weed got up, was weed involved in to, to help the sex drive come up, or was that not a focus? No, um, and maybe that was a sign that things were quite severe for me, because all I wanted was more drugs and alcohol. Really? I was, wasn't what? really interested in girls. I think all of my social anxiety came back. I said that, that the drugs and the alcohol worked for a period, and then I had to up the amounts to try to achieve the same effect. So tolerance, to tolerance is very real? Correct. Okay. And so those old social anxieties and the fear of girls came back, and I only had sex when I was like, well, I was 18 years old and 11 days, but who's counting? Oh, okay, no, no, that's cool. Is, is there anything else that you were looking for at the time? I mean, were you doing sport? Were you sleeping well? Or was it just one way and that's it and nothing else matters? One way. One way. I had to play some cricket and rugby because I was at boys' schools and sports was very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. But I had no interest, no inclination. If I could get out of it at any point, I would, you know? So there is literally no way... So, so I think the question for me would be, so that, that was your personality, that's how you were put together and that ran. For someone, does it come in a scale of addict? As in, you went in one night and that was it done. Can that build up and then suddenly someone trips over and becomes an addiction? Mm -hmm. How does that spectrum work? If, if you understand what I mean, it, it's, it's either instant or not, it's not the case. There is a spectrum to this thing. Thanks, really like the way you stretched out that question because I was eating. Uh, that's I was what very, I did pretty well there, don't you I think? Was, I, I was really yeah. appreciative, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, absolutely, there's a spectrum and a time frame that most people that become addicted start to drinking or using in their teens. 
what we we used to think that the brain matures at 21. Yeah. We now know that the female brain matures at 23 and the male brain at 25. And any drug alcohol abuse before that can set you up for becoming addicted later. There's a huge sure. marker at the moment of geriatrics who have become addicted. You know, you're struggling to sleep in your 40s, and so the doctor gives you a sleeping pill, and so you take it every two weeks, every week, mm-hmm. and slowly. Thanks, wow, Bommie. thanks, Bommy. Uh, beautiful, thanks, Bom. But most people's addictions didn't take off like mine. Mm. So most of the friends that I began to use with as a teenager crashed a lot later. Most of the patients we get crash a lot later. There's so, sorry. So for someone like you, that was instant. Yeah. Is that very uncommon? Or is it not that strange if people go down the road? You know what I mean? Because that's like, boom, done. I mean, mm, mm. is that exception to the rule? I don't know. I think... I'm not sure if it's more rare. Mm. Um, but most people do develop an addiction over a much longer time. So, like, I was invited to leave about four different high schools and I can never understand why Jerry but looking back now mm. with the hindsight yeah. in retrospect <laughs> it's, all, it's all become clear mm. um, you know they, they genuinely I don't know about the schools that you were at but they'd really expect me to pitch up at a quarter to eight in the morning mm. stone cold sober and you can't sell drugs to the other kids what, what do they want the actual fuck? what do they want you to do what is going on here <laughs> way too high expectations Jerry mm. did, did you, so you started selling immediately well Selling might be too gangsterish a word, but I would buy and I would pass it on Share. for a slight markup. Mm. You know, it wasn't more like to sustain rather than to make a business Correct. out of it. Correct, yeah. Uh. There was a friend of mine, Nick and I, and we went to, we hitchhiked to Swaziland. Yeah. And we bought a millie bag full of Swazi Reds, just pot. And a millie bag full? A fucking millie bag full. It's cheap. We came back and we put it in bankies and we sold it on. That's a proper business. Uh, we did it once and then I was... Gee whiz. I don't know where I was. My mother used to call me the Irish Aborigine because <laughs> she was Irish and I used to go walk about. Yeah. You know, I'd go for three, four, five days a week or more. And so my father and my older brother would drive the streets trying to look me, look for me while she found the you know, police stations and, and hospitals and morgues. Mm. Um, and Nick went away on a trip when I was out being the Aborigine. Sure. And I used to love it. I got to school with civvies in my school bag change it to the civvies, stuff my school clothes into the bag and hide it under a bush. Right, right, right. Going to Hill Brown. Just, you know, you could buy shit at the chemist. Yeah. You could buy litre bottles of codeine. You could buy pills. Obex, That's changed, surely. Rahipnol. Oh, yeah. yeah it's all In changed. a big way. Yeah, yeah. Fuck that. The old, the old days were good. The poor kids are now suffering. <laughs> they got to really work to get the drugs. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. But, but, um, so, so people around you, friends, family, yeah. at this time. So you go out the night, you have your first, and then suddenly it's just boom. Yeah. Were you able to hide it from people around you for a long time? Very well for about two years. Two years? Yeah. They had no idea. No idea. Well, I, my That's older longer than knew. I would have thought, eh? Hey? Hey? I, I didn't think it would be that long. My older brother knew, but he didn't know it was as bad. He thought it was just pot and I was doing all sorts like of other things. Like a social things. thing every once yeah, in a while. Yeah, yeah. But, mm. um, yeah, so I could got to, listen, I could speak about addiction all day long, but... Mm. Um, yeah, at about the age of 19, the only way this rehab would have me back was if I was on a court order. So, Sorry, uh, explain that. So you've been there and they said you're not coming back unless... Yeah, because oh, okay. you know, I caused a bit of strife and sure. wasn't the ideal patient. So we're sitting outside the yeah, shoot, 
Was, was there something you were going to say? No, no, no. I'm just you trying to catch you with your mouthful. Oh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, so we're sitting outside the court in these wooden benches, and there was a social worker, and they've done all these reports and stuff, and the court order's going to go through. And I'm on this wooden bench about a metre and a half away from my mum, who's in a puddle of tears and mucus, fucking mm. weeping her eyes out, this broken woman, because oh, her son's so fucked up. And I looked over at her, and I thought, can't you all see what the problem is? She's a drama queen. And when the going gets tough, I will exert all of my intellectual prowess and strength of character. And, yeah. You know, I'll push through, I'll pull my socks up, and I'll just deal with this. I'm just a naughty lighty that's having a good time. That's all in your head, this eh? It's not a big deal, yeah. Mm. So when I didn't finish school, I got a standard eight, a grade 10. Mm. And they kept inviting me to leave, and yeah, it's yeah. not a big deal. Oh. Things will all work out in the end. Mm. Luckily, I was right. Things did all work out but yeah. thank, thank fuck I could when, get off when was the last day that you used 4th of January or the 3rd of January my, my sobriety that's the 4th of January mm. 1993 I can't remember if that's the first day clean or the last oh, day okay, I used okay, but okay. it's there yeah. <coughs> what was the next year like fucking amazing really total absolute bliss is it clarity what, what is it what, what, what? well I had gone from years of know, knowing I was in trouble uh-huh. years of actually not wanting to use and not being able to ask for help and not thinking there was any help or any mm. way out. Thinking, well, recovery and treatment's all fine for you guys, but my case is so fucked up and so severe and I'm there's, such there's a nothing for me. there's nothing I can do. So my parents asked me to leave the house and not come back when I was about 19. Um, anyway, long story short, yeah, yeah. I ended up staying on the street for six months. And then I, um, I moved in with my dealer and I was always thinking like, if I, instead of being on a motorcycle, if I drive in a cage, a car, and have a collared shirt and a tie, and mm-hmm. I do a nine-to-five job, yeah. and I just eat the pharmaceuticals and drink beer, so I can't use any illegal drugs, I can't drink any hard tack, mm-hmm. I can't smoke drugs or shoot drugs, right, right. That's, that's one way I carved it up, thinking that'll help me to control the problem and manage the problem. And then it was, you know, if I do something else. I had the, these different sets of circumstances that if I lived this way, I yeah. would be able to control my addiction. It wouldn't be so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one thing I used to try, try to do is, is have a job. So I was staying in Tempisa with my dealer and there was a strike on in Alex and so the factories couldn't operate. They were okay. looking for people to work. So I think this is it. I'm going to go to work. I'm not going to be, you know, I'll sleep at the dealer, but I'm not going to be involved in all the mishmash and the stuff that goes on. And I'll earn some rands and I'll pay tax and I'll be a good little responsible mm. person, little adult. Yeah. So the first down there, the, I was spraying frying pans with Teflon. Okay. And I want to be a good, so I was spraying and working hard and working good. And I'd go and smoke in the bathroom. Uh, smoke cigarette. Smoke mandrax. Mandrax. Yeah. Okay. So smoking mandrax and drinking methadone and drinking alcohol. That was my particular on that, carved up okay, that particular okay. phase in my life. Thinking this will be controlled. I can sustain this. Correct. Yeah. I'll sustain it. The consequences won't be too bad. Uh, at the end of the day, this guy comes and drops a bucket for me to clean the spray gun in. So I'm cleaning the spray gun. My hands are burning. I'm cleaning, cleaning. I've got to clean it properly. It's my first day. I want to do a good job. Mm. I come out. My hands up to here. Mm. Just, just past my wrist, or all like if you spend some time in the bath and you get that like old people's skin, like, yeah, 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 like grimpy. But blood was coming out of the cracks. So the what I, I, I had cleaned the gun in thinners or terps or something that my hands weren't supposed to be in. So I get back to, I can't touch anything. I can't pick things up. They're fucking sore. Yeah. I can't really feed, feed myself. So the next morning, I leave the dealers and I take a taxi back to my folks' house and I knock on the door. 
and my mom opened up and she was a lot smaller and she just looked more frail than I remembered. And she cried and she took me in. I hadn't seen them in, I don't know, six, eight months or yeah. more. And she peeled back the covers to my old bed and she ran me a hot bath. And, and so it was about five or six weeks after that I cleaned up. They let me stay there. Mm. And yeah, yes, I cleaned up after that. And that was, that was the last day? No, about five or six weeks after that. So I stayed in the okay. house and continued using. It's such an interesting thing, hey, because if, like to me, I mean, I know one or two people that have gone down a road. Um, I don't know all their stories, but it's very easy to sit on the outside and say, oh, why did you do that? Why did you go back? Why did you do it again? Well, yeah. Come on. That's it. I mean, if I can do it, you can do it. And it's, I think it's eye-opening, especially now. I mean, I was, I was also, one of, the, one of the future guests on the podcast is a therapist, Barry. And him and I started a conversation about uh, mental health in COVID times and how people are just fucked up. I mean, people are broken at base level. It's just, they don't know where to go, whether it was staying at home with your wife for six, seven, eight, whatever, weeks, not being able to work, not being able to disentangle your personal, all of these things. And people don't have coping mechanisms. So for some people, coping mechanism might be a hell of, I don't know, you go to gym and you yeah. bench press it out. Like you. Sure. But still, you look at someone that has that kind of story and you're like, oh, come on, man, you could have done better. Yeah. That is actually, and I almost want to say it's disrespectful for someone to say that you could have done better. You're not in your shoes. Yeah, but it's like lack That's of education, hard. Jerry, because... It's a the- big no-no. We don't talk about those things. Well, there's a huge shame, particularly in the families. You know, we don't want mm. to talk about our kid or my spouse or my dad who's sure. addicted because he's behaving like such a tit. And you do get judged. I mean, everybody looks at him and says, just pull your fucking socks out. Mm. Come on, just be better, man. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, if I can drink six beers twice a week and have a glass of wine on a Sunday lunch and still pitch up for work in the morning, in the meantime, you're gone for three days. We find you in Mozambique yeah, with a big scar on your back and a hand. You have no Mozambique idea how the fuck you got there. No. What the fuck's wrong with you? Yeah. But one of the biggest misconceptions about addiction is that people can do that is that it's a matter of strength of character or willpower yeah, yeah. we actually know and have proven on enhanced brain scans that addiction is a brain disease so mm-hmm. our brains as yeah. normal non- non-addicted people mm-hmm. will look very different to a person who's addicted if their brain structure the actual shape of their brain and the function of their brain is different to yours and mine is it something to do so with we the way know we... it's a brain disease so it is a brain disease yeah we know this has it something to do with the way the brain produces or processes dopamine is that that must be something in there? Because I mean, dopamine hit—you can do a quick little uh, eat a cake, you feel happy, or social media these days. It's just a boom. There's your dopamine. But is it a way that the brain processes it? Is there a way that it gets produced? Why is it different for people? Well, there are really three reasons. The one is our individual biology. Mm-hmm. We know that the Japanese and the North American Red Indians cannot process alcohol in the way that there's that one particular gene that 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 in the i've heard that i was actually funny you mentioned i was in tokyo many years ago for a gymnastics competition and we we didn't go out at all we left competition so you were either at the hotel or at the venue competition and you would subway forward and back that's it what what sort of age were you uh i was 26 27 somewhere there gymnastics yeah yeah Mm -hmm. brilliant you must be good um yeah that was world champs there so i had my that's why i made a doll we're pretty Pretty good. She told me that. She said yeah. something about it. Long, long, long time ago. 
I try that shit now, I'll never walk again. <laughs> so, but but that whole thing about what with them? It's the, it's the Japanese and who else? And the North American Red Indians. Mm. I, I was listening to podcasts or something somewhere, and the guy mentioned the actual gene that they have or don't have. But I remember clearly on the Saturday night of the competition. So the competition runs Saturday and Sunday. So we would be going in Thursday, train forward and back. On our way back, on that subway, it was a shit show. I'm talking, these people are, and I mean, beautiful young women. They are fucking broken, falling over, falling into the subway. Horrible. But like, to the point where if we had to take a mate who can drink a lot and you force him for three days, this was horrendous what I saw on the subways. Wow. Like, Like totally nothing. And it, it makes sense. So they, so that's a part of the biology. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. you're born that way or this way. So that's the one. What else? Correct. And that's something we've no control over. So yeah. let's say the three factors are bio, psycho, and social. So my mm. biology, my psychological makeup, and the social environment. I saw so that on your website. It's a nice breakdown. One of those people on the train, one or two or four, it's going to develop an addiction problem. Have they done anything different than their peers as a teenager or a young adult going out and experimenting? They're all doing mm. it, they're all a bit drunk. Some of them are going to develop serious life-threatening addiction problems. They, they aren't to blame for that. So if I have a kid, that, that kid's going to be 25% more likely to become addicted because I had an addiction problem. So it runs right. in my family. And I'll talk a bit more about my gambling grandfather in a minute because my family would never admit that there's any addiction <coughs> problems ever. All the mental health or anything. Right, right. Every rehab I was admitted to, they asked the parents, any mental health issues? Any uh, addiction yeah. stuff? Oh, no, no, no. no not us. Not in our family. God Sweet baby Jesus. Not yeah. us. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> so the biology is a factor. And of course, the psychological stuff. So if you and I are twins and we're born into a home, mm. we have the same food, the same level of nurturing and mm. guidance and education and good parenting and bad parenting we have exactly the same well it's never exactly the same but we have as close as can be upbringings mm. and i become an addict and you don't so it's a weird thing about my psychological makeup how i see the world if i'm yeah. more anxious i'm scared to approach the girls at that age is all that stuff that's that's going on and that'll differ from person to person so my psychological mm. makeup is important then of course there's the social environment just yeah, four kilometers from here across the hill into westbury I took a call last year from a mother whose nine-year-old was addicted to meth, Jerry. Nine, nine years old. old. And that's because you're growing up in that environment. The older guys who you want to fit in with, you want to be mates with, they're all smoking, you know, pot mm. or meth or something. So the 14-year-olds want to fit in with the 18-year-olds. Somewhere on there, all those drugs are tricky. He's nine years old and smoking meth. That fucked is up on it. madness. And, it, and like I said just now about the brain maturing, mm. Women mature 23 minutes, 25. If you ever tell anybody that they mature quicker than us, I'll just fucking deny it, Jerry. No, 100%. I'll delete this part of the audio, yeah. Just delete this whole thing. (laughs) Um, But if you think about a nine-year-old, what kind of future has that kid got? Uh He's addicted to meth at nine. Addicted at nine? When did it start? I mean, it's just... So, again, the social environment, was that kid sexually abused mm. by a neighbor at three four five six seven mm. did his dad beat him or did his dad just not be there so he grew up without a father because the father's mm. in jail or the father's married yeah. and moved on or so so the social environment it's is complex so hey? yeah absolutely it's There's, a complex I mean, thing and it's so easy as you said for mm. everybody to go oh why did you just pull your bloody socks up and do oh, it right come on man and, and it's not look that at way. your friend john he's this beautiful kid he's running around in the rugby field and he's doing yeah. well why can't you yeah <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. like that 
something we're looking at nature, nurture, and there's something else. There's biosocial and psychological. Biopsychosocial, yeah. Mm. It's very scary, home. Oh, it's very scary. Do you guys pl- plan to have kids? Mm-mm. Probably not. Uh, no. I'm 50. I always thought I would have kids, but I'm kind of at a level now where. I'm accepting absolutely fine to not have kids. I've got some fantastic nephews and niece, mm. and uh, so I can spoil them. And, and a kid's a huge responsibility. Are you, are, are you still scared to go up to women? No. Like you were in. No. I'm on the other end of the spectrum. Now they're <laughs> like, okay, just back up. He's just. just <laughs> <laughs> no, Jerry, now, uh, now I have no qualms. I mean, if there's oh. a person I like, I walk over the room. I was in an airport a couple of years ago, and there was this most beautiful woman. Beautiful. And she was sitting across on those chairs from me, waiting, waiting at the gate. Board, yeah. Yeah. And um, and I just wanted to say to her, like, I know you're married. I know that this is not a come on. Yeah. I just think you're one of the most beautiful women I've yeah. ever seen. You're absolutely stunning. Uh-huh. And I got up and walked away because because I wanted. To, I was in the dog park yesterday. There was a woman with a beautiful dress. It was such a pretty dress, and it's really nice. And to extend myself in that way perhaps to give this granny a bit of a good day because I complimented her on a dress is easy for me for me to walk across the room like if a woman is making eyes at me and I like her I'll go, go over there and say Straight hello mm. no qualms do you think so I mean going back now so, so the psyche of that little boy who was scared to walk across to the, the other part to go and say to this girl do you want to dance with your pickup, your, your, your comeback at the back yeah. <laughs> from there to now You went through this whole thing, right? Got clean and now you've, you've changed. Do you think there's a certain, and I don't mean this in a bad way, of overcompensating? Because you were, you, were, you were scared then. Do you think now that you're, for lack of a bit better and you're now clean and all that, yeah. is then overcompensating to try and fix things from then? In terms of the approaching woman? Or I mean, in terms as, of, as an example. In terms of the line of work I'm in? Anything, yeah. Uh, in terms of the amount of time I invest in my recovery? Mm. I know today that my recovery is the most important thing in my life. And that might sound selfish if I have a girlfriend or a kid, or but if I don't have no. recovery, nothing else matters. Mm. Everything in my life will get worse. Uh-huh. And if I have recovery, everything will continue to get better. It's so, the foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's a nice, nice way to see it, yeah. The building, the walls, the seats, the nothing can be here without a mm. solid foundation. Mm. So how did you get into how did you get into the line of work thing? So I mean I sort of fell into it. I sort of Talented. Um, what did you want to be when you grew up? Nothing. I didn't Nothing. Have any ideas? So by the I time that started, no that idea. thought starts happening for a young kid, you were in a different place. Well, I don't know. Did, did, did you sort of love gymnastics and wanted to be doing that as an adult? I wanted to. So my, my dad was an engineer, so I knew I didn't want to do that because yep. it looked shit from my point of view. Yep. Fucking drawing all day. And day <laughs> Same for me. My dad was a banker, and I knew that was not for me. No, can, can you turn the volume? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. How's that? Go again. There you go. Beauty. Better. Wow. Done. Um, so dad was Dad was an engineer, engineer yeah. and I did not want to do that. I was not interested at all. I wanted to do something, and it's funny, I never knew exactly, but I knew it was sport, something competitive, and wow. also in front of or with people. That was that was my narrative. And Jeez, then we, that's cool. You go for these, what these things, aptitude tests. Yes. And they all would say, okay, you need to be a performance artist and or a sportsman. I'm like, how the fuck am I going to combine that? What do you want? I'm going to do push-ups and then sing opera at the same time. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but it's always been, and it, it's, it's kind of been true. 
that the aptitude stuff that they did. So I never knew, but I knew I wanted to work with and in front of people. That's very cool. Yeah. Just in the job you're in today, it fits oh, that perfectly. Mm. It kind of had, it took a while to get there. It's been all over the place. I wonder if I should do some of those tests today because when I did them, I was using as a team. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it had one on a Tuesday, it came out as a forestry ranger. On a Thursday, was a concert pianist. On a Friday, was a plumber. Mm. You know, so it would be nice to do an out see. When you were doing those things, so, so I mean, I know for a fact, you, got, you, you put these aptitude tests in front of kids. Even now, if you do like a business skill development thing, you see all these questions repeat. Would you rather read a book or go and sleep under a tree? And then it's like, would you rather read an essay or sleep on the couch? Okay, I get there's a theme here, guys. It's not, I can get this. Were you answering those things just to make them go away? Just, okay, no. there's your test, go. Or were Honestly. you... Honestly. Really? And one day plumber, one day electrician, one day... No, I don't think it was that specific. I think it was sort of to work with your hands, you know? Mm. And the other one was to be out in nature, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and the other one to be a performer, mm -hmm. you know? But I never really had... And it was just—I never really just engaged in mm. life as to what it could could be. Mm. So, how did you fall into what you're doing now? I cleaned up when I was 21, and um, there was a guy called Russell Unterslack okay. who started the second 12-step Minnesota model rehab in the country, which is an abstinence-based model. It's based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. How you pump? Yep. Anything else drink-wise? No, good, thank you. Okay. I'm still good for now. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Um, so, you, you met this guy? Yeah, yeah. So, he cleaned up probably in 1994, 95. <clears throat> and he opened a rehab with a medical aid check for 96 Rand and 28 Rand he had in his pocket. He gave it to this guy in Houghton, the landlord, and mm. said, here's a deposit. I'll come back with the rest of the rent. <clears throat> and that night... I worked in the film industry at the time as a runner. Yeah. And the production manager was called Greg, and Greg's brother. Yeah. I don't know Bruce or something, I can't quite remember his name, but it was his first time at a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. I didn't know he was Greg's brother. And Russell had this cell phone that was in like an over the shoulder strap with a big handle on it. Yeah, you could kill someone with those things, those blocks. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. If anybody attacked you, you had a weapon. Yeah, I guess you know? if you could lift it. <laughs> so. Russell took Greg's brother in the car and drove him to this rented house okay. and said, you're going to treatment. You're, uh, yeah. you know. So I said, well, Russell, you can't really blur the lines between narcotics and arms and people going there for free 12-step help mm. and your new treatment center that doesn't employ any professionals has nothing going yeah. on. Please, buddy, you can't continue to poach newcomers from the rooms, mm. the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous. <coughs> Luckily that night... Jeremy Kaufman was Russell's first partner. Okay. And Greg's brother, the first client there, stole the TV and the video machine and fucked off to Hillbrow, which is around the corner, and sure, smoked sure. it. So then wow. the TV and the video machine were in Jeremy's name. He said, oh, I'm not doing this anymore, and he left. And so Russell got another partner. And um, he kept poaching these people from the rooms. And I kept saying, Russell, you can't yeah, do this, right. Narcotics Anonymous is not your feeder for your rehab. Yeah. He was, was, he was the most lovable rogue I've ever met. He, of course, just kept on doing it. Yeah. But, um, so, in 95, there was a weekend training by two psychologists on group therapy. Okay. And so, Russell and myself and five or six other people attended. And that was the first bit of training I had. 
and I went from working in the film industry to an estate agent in 1997 I started to work with Russell Levy's rehab and so I, I just kind of I didn't qualified anything I wasn't doing gymnastics in Japan mm. I wasn't starting to be a plumber I uh, this is the stuff I knew I knew about recovery and addiction and so I fell into being a counselor there are you still part of the counseling or do you oversee more no I've um, relinquished any cl clinical role this this last week so I've decided to stand back entirely and focus on marketing and business development to find a bigger house and more licenses and all that stuff there's this thing you mentioned marketing and men are not allowed to be mental health issues yeah I can just deal with it the idea of and I'm thinking for my family friends and stuff like that as well is the idea of looking for a rehab place to go now I don't know do you guys advertise on Instagram market as such yeah okay now I, I don't get fed those ads I will probably because Mark's probably listening to me right now on here right. hi Mark um, what is the message you put out are you speaking to the individual or is this the, the message to the families and the friends great question 95% of inquiries come from the families, mm. not the patient. The patient is still in denial, at least the level of it. And they get forced, cajoled, squeezed and pressured into treatment. And what's interesting about that, Jerry, is everybody, again, it's another one of these common misconceptions that people think, unless the patient's hit rock bottom, yep. this mythological rock bottom, and they desperately want help and they're highly motivated for treatment, mm. um, it's not going to work. <coughs> Sorry. And, and that's complete crap. Yeah. So external pressure from families, friends, employers, even the ju judicial system by getting a court order, sure, sure. that pressure is good to get people in and to keep them in. And yeah. if you keep them in treatment for long enough, mm -hmm. the outcomes are better. How often does someone approach you and say, I have a problem? Jeez. I'm no longer on the inquiry calls, but I mean, in a busy day, they probably take 25 calls of which six or seven are qualified in that right right they're appropriate for treatment they're not so psychotic that they're a danger of risk to themselves and those around them um and they have a the medical aid and they have money to pay for treatment because unfortunately that's the reality that of the situation yeah. anywhere america europe england australia you know uh, although I, I would imagine the state facilities in europe and australia are mm. more easily available yeah, yeah, yeah. better quality than here I'm just wondering how, and look, I, I can't put myself in the mindset, but how would you as an individual start realizing something's not right here? What, what would get, is it when you start affecting the people around you? Is it when you don't pitch up for work? Is it all of those things? When does someone realize that? And in the same question would probably go to, from a family <coughs> member's point of view, like if you have a brother and he's a real party animal, yep. always out and stuff. What's the warning? When do, I, when do you think, okay, shit, this is real? You've what? mentioned a couple of the diagnostic criteria there. So problems with your family, problems at work, yeah. you crash a car, your brother thinks you're a party animal then begins to realize perhaps it's something more severe than that. So the critical diagnostic criteria for addiction is loss of control. Mm -hmm. So I start to use, I get the tolerance, which we spoke about. I become physically addicted and I have withdrawal, so I have to keep using. Yeah. Um, I crash a car, and the first time I can justify, you know, it was, the I roads were wet and yeah. I was looking down at the radio on my cell phone, ah, that's why it happened. It wasn't because I was drunk or high. And 
Then it happens again, and your wife starts to give you crap, and you lose your job, and so you know the family's Spiral. income, and your wife gives you trouble. And and the critical thing about addiction is that loss of control. So despite all of the negative consequences that we've mentioned, mm. I, I persist. I continue to use, in yeah. spite of all of that. So my number one relationship becomes the one with the chemicals, the drugs, and the alcohol. My family, career, kids. Mm -hmm. Physical, mental, spiritual, emotional health, all that stuff takes a distant 20-second back seat. Sure. Primary relationships with the drink and the drugs. And I think very often it's a family that realize the severity of the problem before the patient mm. does. I'm, I'm guessing so. What about things like sex addiction or social media addiction or any, any other kind of addiction that's not substance-based? Do you guys deal with that as well? Not really. The process addictions are a lot more difficult to treat and in a specific kind of environment. So... In fact, there was a clinic I worked at in the UK where um, there was a 40-year-old crackhead. The guy who owned and ran the clinic would just admit to anybody. You know, he, he didn't really have any scruples in my mind. Just come on in. Yeah, it was just money and a business. So <clears throat> I had, um, yeah. So uh, a 40-year-old crackhead had a relationship sex thing with a girl in her late teens. I think she was 17 in the in the in the, in the clinic, rehab. Yeah. She felt pregnant. Oi, oi, oi. Proper problem. So sex addicts in males must be kept separate from females. It's a different kind of treatment. It's slightly different treatment mm. approach. There's so much more shame around sex addiction. Yeah. You know, it's so much more like you're paying for sex or you're, um, you know. Like porn addiction or, porn. or whatever the case is, yeah. Porn's quite severe. There's a great TED talk on how porn rewires the brain in the same way as drink and drugs does. And the problem with porn is that your hand can move a lot quicker than anybody, than your girlfriend. Sure. Yeah. And the stuff you're watching online is crazier than anything you'll ever probably it's, it's get not, to experience. Yeah. And so you, you end up becoming impotent when you're trying to have sex with a partner because she cannot, just she, not she or same. he can't compete with the... Yeah. Madness of porn. There's a there's a, a Kevin Hart clip. I don't know if you watch Kevin Hart yeah, live. He did one of his last stadium tours. <laughs> so he's telling about how he's watching porn and he's like, okay, this guy does that. So he's going to try and spice it up at home. And in this, in the, so in the scene that he's watching the porn, he's describing this. He's like, okay, so then as they start getting into it, the man like spits on the woman or something. Yeah, I've seen this. And he's like, okay, so when he gets in that night. He's like, yeah, come on, honey. And as they get busy, he's like, da. And his wife's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> that whole scene is just brilliant. Yeah, it's so good. But, I mean, as funny as it is, comedians have to poke fun at real things. It is a real problem because whatever those things are that they do in there, it's just not right. It's not normal. Nothing well, about it is normal. I mean, imagine, look, I know about the household that you grew up in. And my, my parents said, you can tell us anything. If you rape someone, you can tell us. If you kill someone, you can tell us. Sure. And I, I heard the words, but I didn't really feel it. I didn't feel that that was a real We're thing. We're saying so, this because we have to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so the sex education was very poor, very low. A three-minute talk about the beds and the bees. Yeah. And then uh, all, all the old guys in the neighborhood invited me along. They watched this porn movie called O. And there was some bondage and domination mm. and uh, some BDSM. Yeah. And so for me, that was my first real yeah, yeah. interaction to what sex is. And the kids today, the access to porn is so oh easy. So goodness. can you imagine the wild shit they're watching? Mm -mm. And then the first time they have sex, this is what they're trying to recreate because that, that's the turn on. That's, yeah, that's my baseline. That's what everything gets judged against. And exactly. Their, their sexual template is set in that way. Mm. 
if um, a friend of ours, well, it's like my sister-in-law's ex-boyfriend. It's just like, and, um, he had two kids. And this is like in the last few years. At the time, they were nine and I think 13, two girls. And he then, on the nine-year-old's phone, found some things which is like you and I would kind of blush at. It was like, what the hell? It's literally, I mean, the device we have here is scary. It's real it trouble. very, you know. very scary. So, I don't know. Very, very hard. That's real trouble for can, a kid. Can, can something like, because an addict, like you've said, is it's wired, it's brain and all that stuff. Someone from a porn addiction, for example, mm. or sex or whatever else of these behavioral things, can that lead to substance or vice versa? Is there a link really or are they a little bit separate? I think it depends on what you're exposed to, the personality you have, the funds that you have available, your social environment. That'll determine which um, symptom of so, addiction. So the barrier to entry is different. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And also, you know, your personality and your type and the stuff that you're exposed to. Because addiction is a symptom of what's going on underneath. So if it's drink, drug, sex, food, the gambling, what are you hiding? that's a symptom of what's going on underneath. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so, so someone then comes in to you guys. How long do they stay for? Is it a program or is it based on a per case scenario? Based on a? Per case scenario. Like... I'm going to stay for two weeks because I need help, or is it a year? No, the minimum stays three three weeks, ideally 28 to 30 days. Mm -hmm. Um, And each program is bespoke, I mean, it's individualized for each person, but the content of the program is largely the same. So they get up in the morning, it's a just for the day meeting, breakfast, meds, a lecture, two group therapies before lunch. So whilst my program is specific to me, I'm seeing a psychologist every day. Um, but you know, group therapies, mm. group therapy. Yeah. Does and physical health play a role in any of this? Yeah? Fitness, exercise. Does it play a role in something like this? Well, we know that diets, good diets, mm. is a great thing to start doing in recovery. We know that good exercise is is really important. Hmm. Um, so we have yoga and we have walks and we want to do it too gently. Like if you have a big weights gym, the guys just go mad and pull, bump, bump biceps and drop a pull-up onto their heads. A lot of you know? anger and stuff that they want to try and manage. Yeah, it's more like a competition. Yeah. You know? That's an addiction in itself. Yeah. That that can be very real. Sure. Yeah, we, we have a punch bag and some gloves. Yeah. Do you, do you, things like just on that side of it, do you ever get things like steroids? Mm. Do you get people coming in for that? We just had a guy a little while ago, probably about my age, um, overweight, taking steroids and not doing all the work in the gym. Uh, gave some steroids to his 14-year-old boy who's playing rugby. <laughs> Talk about a... Common sense. A good judgment call, yeah. Yeah, Sounds, seemed like a good idea at the time. Holy hell. Yeah. Mm-mm. And so, I mean, we, we little scratch it at the beginning. COVID, you said it was good for business, so to speak. Yeah. Because of stress, because of overuse. What was the biggest thing that you saw? Alcohol? It's so hard to say. So folks say, like, what's your primary drug of choice? We'd have to be alcohol and then pot. Um, but it really is a smorgasbord across mm. the section. I mean, is it we, often that someone has multiple things? Yeah, yeah. It's very rare to find a purebred... Once. Uh, yeah, purebred alcoholic or pothead or cokehead. Mm. They're all doing this range of things, you know? And it's the same with the ages. Like, a lot of people tell, well, well I don't my 68-year-old rohypnol addicted mom coming in with a 20 year old tick head mm-hmm. um, and yet we can't control that you know I, I firmly believe that the people that you're in treatment with 
at the time or are they to teach you specific lessons? So it's not a mistake that you're in with these people. It's kind of a fate destiny thing. Yeah, I think you know, I think you get to a point where either everything happens for a reason mm. and in perfect order, or it doesn't. It was Einstein has said you, you you get to a point where either God is everything or God is nothing. I think yeah, I think you're right. He said something like that. Yeah. The interesting one, I mean, because I had a bit of a scratch through your website before as well, the religion aspect. So I know of coming from an Afrikaans background, very Afrikaans, conservative, like, okay, not anymore, things have changed. <laughs> but, but in the old days, it was if something happened in the family, whatever family, not mine, just it would be like, okay, we're not going to talk about it, but we, we can pray for little Yanni. We yes. can pray for him, it's fine. Don't go to the doctor, he's okay, we're not going to talk about it, because what if someone finds out about it? So we'll just keep this in-house. Mm-hmm. Is there a treat, not treatment, is religion a part of the process from a rehab point of view? Or is that a very individual thing for the person coming in? We very often get calls, and it's quite common, uh, and it might be Muslim or Christian mm. or Hindu or Buddhist, and l- let's just deal with the Christians because sure. that's the most common one here. Um, so the mom and dad will say, well, <clears throat> is it based on Christianity? Um, the, the, the facility? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I say to them that if I break my leg, are you going to take me to hospital or to the church? Mm-hmm. You don't have to go to a hospital where he's going to receive quality treatment by trained professionals that sure. have experience in dealing with a specific kind of break. The priest can come and hold my hand in hospital while yep. the doctors treat me and pray, and that's absolutely an important that's it. aspect of treatment and recovery. Um, but if so some, some of the rehabs in the States that are based on religion are being c- closed down because oh, for real? it's not treatment, it's a religion. Mm. In fact, there's a rehab here called Narcanon. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's, it no. And no one knows. It's owned and run by the Church of Scientology. Oh. And they believe you go in and you sauna, you sweat out all the toxins and you take a certain set of vitamins and you read a little bit of L. Ron Hubbard and Bob's your uncle. And what about your DNA? And what about your nurture? Well, if you clean for long enough, your brain's going to rewire itself. You know about How the long are you going to sweat for and read L. Ron Hubbard? I mean, you can't you read that shit so much. I mean, but, but that's bizarre. But that's the craziness of it. If that's the world we live in, there's a... And they, are, they, are they closing down? Or no. the ones in the States? Yeah, listen, in 2003, I ran a clinic in the UK. And I was the head of treatment and it only became illegal in 2003 in the UK to call yourself a counsellor if you weren't accredited by a body and okay. a panel. Okay. That was 2003 in England. It's mm-hmm. going to be 2083 here before that becomes the norm and you know, in a hundred years time they might begin to look at shitty rehabs here. although they are beginning to make a move yeah. in that direction. But So th- there are four common denominators amongst people who attain long-term clean time. Okay. Reinforcing behaviour, mm. inspirational group membership, compulsory supervision and bonds with people that they haven't heard in the past. So these four... Sorry, what was the last one? Bonds with people that they haven't heard in the past. So if I go to a 12-step meeting and I forge bonds with with my peers and these people that are in recovery, there's a great social sure. element. We're all going in the same direction. I get a sponsor there who's got qualities in his mm. life that I want in mine and he helps me. Um, so these four factors are found in, in a, just over 50% of stable long-term recoveries. And as far as stats go, that is huge. That's yeah. amazing. Now, I'm not saying, whilst all four of these are found in the cross, they're fellowships, I'm not saying that they're not found in your church group or mm. at the mosque. 
but they are all found in the 12 steps and that's why we use the model because it really is a useful mm. way to get people back on track yeah how often do you get people coming back that slide quite frequently yeah that's unfortunate eh? you probably have uh, one every four to six weeks who's an ex-patient who's coming back such a and and so I'm just thinking so I mean I see a therapist once a week for a long time yeah. because I mean from a coaching point of view I take a lot of stuff in from people and it's a nice signing board but also sometimes you just want to talk sometimes you just want to pin those so when they leave do you recommend X Y and Z for them go and join a gym find a buddy that's going to check you and go and see a therapist or is it per case again well the accountability partner and, and exercise and seeing a therapist is a great step in the right direction it's not enough so a lot of our patients go from the three or four weeks in primary care okay. to three four five months in secondary care what's the difference there well the best way to explain it is like primary school high school and tertiary okay. education so the primary school the kids are very little the teachers and the system take a lot of responsibility for them that's what it's like in our primary care there's 24 hour nursing they're monitored all the time gotcha. so there's a lot of intensive monitoring in the secondary care phase, like high school, they're allowed to begin to structure their time, they take a bit more responsibility. And we look at some of the underlying causes and conditions, the reasons as to how and why they've become addicted yeah. in the first place, but most importantly, what they can do today to begin to take some responsibility for getting better. Um, sure. And then the tertiary care, the halfway houses, is just about a reintegration phase. So they live there and they're expected to be out in the daytime working or studying, they come back at night cook a meal together go 10 pin bowling and go to some 12 is that just just because of the environment the support you've got someone yeah the yeah. sober environment's important mm. um so we really encourage our primary care patients to go to secondary or the halfway house if they're appropriately okay. self-sufficient enough to be in the half house and go to work in the daytime folks that are going home to um you know jobs and life mm. on earth they are encouraged to join the outpatient, which takes us between five and seven from Monday to Friday. That's okay. the most intensive outpatient support that you can get. Right. And then there is a um, an aftercare that runs three times a week, so it's a bit cheaper and a little mm. less intensive. So they might join that. We know that the relapse rates drop off after 90 days. We know that they drop off significantly then, and again after one year. Okay. And. So keeping people contained for a year and in, in tethered yeah. to some kind of a treatment process for that year is very important. Mm. Jeez, it's a lot of stuff. It does sound though that, I mean, for people who need help, that, I mean, there's all these various options. It's this, this, that, you can come in. It, it's, it's eye-opening for me personally. It really is because, the, 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 and this could probably sound a bit harsh, but like, I, I, I enjoy having a whiskey or a beer, but, and I don't, know, I, I don't understand the addictive personality from that point of view, but yeah. I get to a point, I'll have three whiskeys and I, something says to me, okay, you know what? It's enough. I don't want to lose more control. And I also fucking hang over bad. I, I'm not gonna maybe count on two hands that I've ever had in my life. I don't like it. I don't like the control. I like to be physically active. The morning's good, all those things. And you often look at people out and there's not that. And there's once or twice we've had a discussion between mates and like, do we say something? Don't we say something? If someone's in that situation, do you say something to that person? Or do you speak to their wife, their husband, their... What's the... I mean, there's not an accepted way, but mm. what, what would you recommend? Because, because if, I, if you and I have a couple of drinks, 
and you, Johanna's here, and we're chatting, and you, and I'm like, Johanna, this oak, dude, you got to fucking watch this, but that's not going to be productive, mm. surely. How, how do I deal with that? Because like you said, I don't think there's an ideal way to do it. Um, I think it depends on the circumstances and the severity, again, of the problem, because if it's a mildly annoying occasional thing that you pick up, then I think a chat with your mate is best. But um, if it's more severe than that, it might be appropriate to arrange an intervention to speak to their parents, their loved ones, any other significant mm. people or important stakeholders, perhaps even their boss. Mm. And you all get together in a room and you know you have a chat. You, yeah, yeah, you go to his house at seven in the morning, six in the morning, you wake him up and he comes out half asleep and you do a intervention. Have you been involved with some of those with clients? Yeah, I've done it close to 200 Where they pull you in and you go and help them. With yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I've done them in, I've done one in France, Canada, mm. many in England, two in Thailand, and There must be a huge amount here. of denial on the spot. Oh, yeah, yeah, complete denial. They're furious with me and their oh, family. How yeah. dare they do this? Mm. How dare you impose this ridiculousness on oh. me? I've, I've, I'm in control. I've got this. Yeah. I've, da, 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 da. You, it's your problem. This is your controlling, la la la. This is, you know, complete crap. And yeah. A couple of them got kicked by a girl in Barrydale last year sometime. She hoofed me on the leg, China. She gave me such a good As kick. During intervention? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we had the police, we had a court order. Uh, we that's had quite mother. a severe case, actually. Yeah. That's, that's heavy. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I suppose it is extreme and heavy, but. Fairly common mm. practice. We had one in court in Freiburg this morning who freaked out and kicked. Ah, da, da, da. So it was postponed to Monday. So we'll see. It must be such a difficult thing. So I'm just thinking from, from, from my mind point of view. If you're faced with that, is there, and maybe you can answer this from way back, I don't know, is there a part, like they, 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 there's this thing about do, does a crazy person really know he's crazy type vibe? So when this intervention happens, someone's going, fuck this, you leave me alone, I've got this, leave me alone, da, da, da. Is there a little bit inside something that you are denying that little voice saying, listen, dude, you're actually fucked up, but yeah. now pride and ego, I'm not going to fucking yeah. let this go. Is that a... In some of the cases, you can actually see a glimmer of they're actually being dishonest and trying to manipulate the situation because they understand how bad it is. In that moment. Yes. Yeah. And some of them, not a glimmer not an ounce they believe 100 percent that that girl that kicked me we had to get an ambulance because she the police took her to the local government hospital was the only one there and then the ambulance took her the next day uh, to Ocho mm. or to george to the lamprecht and she spent three or four days there so i flew back here and then i flew back down and met with her and the family again and she was prepared to be transported by her mother okay. to Cape Town to a rehab. Right. I said, no, she's got to go with two transportation guys, the sober companions. Yeah. And they put the child lock on and they sit with her in the car. She can't come out and they take her straight to the rehab sure. where she spent four months. Now she's doing great. She wants to study to be an addictions counselor, as all of them do. You know, mm. they clean for four minutes. I'm, I'm going to be a this. counselor. Yeah. Oh. But, but, but that's the question. Is that the overcompensating? I fucked up so badly, I want to do this one. No, Is that a thing? An overcompensation. I think it's like you've, you've been pulled from the jaws of a lion. Mm. The lion was chewing on your head. He was about to have a final crushing blow, and you somehow got pulled, pulled yourself out. from the jaws of the lion. 
Like a lot of people, I just had 29 years clean, and a lot of people, oh, well done, well done, Gala, well done. I always feel a bit bad in taking credit for it. I didn't fucking suddenly clean up because it was a choice I made. It's because I didn't want to fucking die. I'm worse than the biggest fear was I didn't want to go That's to jail. Huge. That's so that huge. pain and that fear pushed me in the direction of being clean. That's all. It's not like deciding I'm going to go to gym now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or, yeah. Jeez. So what do you do when you're not working? That's a good question. Or do you I've, always work? Uh, that's a problem in today's society. We work too much. Yeah, I mean, a couple of, like, ten years ago, I really struggled to go away for a few days because it just bored out of my head. I wanted to get back, back to work. So I found activity breaks are good. Mm -hmm. so, so I very often um, jump on my bike with a tent and, you know, some nice stuff and head off into the wilderness. Which and with nice. your new car, I hope you're going to go some 4x4. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm going to throw a dirt bike on the back and, you know, you can drive nice. into bots and have a, you know, you tow those um, Conqueror 4 by 4 trailers oh, those, and yeah. you open them up, but doing, you've got, got like, like a rooftop everything. tent. There's DSTV, awning, there's, but everything's yeah. in there. And a kitchen and water. Oh. Have you done much of that? Never. Then I've done, I've done a whack on the bike where, you know, you just find a nice place in the rocks to sleep. Yeah. But um, I've never done any 4x4 four, four four with a trailer and all that stuff. Do you find it difficult to switch off from work, though? Because it's very emotional. No. No. I can love switching off from really? work. Really? <laughs> so you can go home, turn your phone Bang. off? Bang. Nothing. Well, I can't, I can't turn my phone off. Because, okay. you know, the nurse or emergencies, or no. you know, there's always something, yeah. But you don't find it difficult to disconnect when you walk away? Because it does seem like it's quite an intimate, emotional thing when you're at work. I miss the patient's contact. I miss having a caseload and doing a truckload of group therapy is the most magical thing, Jerry. I just love it. I miss doing more lectures. I miss being a part of that face-to-face -face connecting with the people. Like this morning, <coughs> excuse me, someone, the staff member came to me and said, Anna Marie is, you know, she said something about, and I said, who's Anna Marie? Like, I have no idea how old she is. I know nothing about a story. Mm. So I walk out amongst the patients. I know none of their names. How many people at once? Like at your, at uh, We've got 66 in the whole system. So 21 in primary. Okay. 26 in secondary and two halfway houses. In fact, it's probably more than 66 mm. now, yeah. It must be hell of a fulfilling. Doing what you do. Yeah. Fulfillment. Maybe more so when you did the lectures and all those things. Yeah. Well, Jerry, I mean, I've done a whack of things. I've sold mortgages in Miami. Mm. I worked for the UN in The Hague on mm -hmm. a war crimes tribunal. And I've run addiction rehabs in the UK and here at home. And I guess, I guess that um, the addictions work is the most fulfilling. Right. <laughs> it's the most fulfilling work I've done. It's a funny thing, I mean, because I mean, when I work with people on the one side of it, I host them during the best time of their life. Right. As far as, look, there's a fucking polar bear, there's they this. They save polar. up for it, they make a careful choice. Yeah. They plan and prep and buy clothes it's for like, Africa. Yeah, it's just the perfect little scenario. And on the coaching side now, I'm working with people who, they, they're not in a bad way, but they feel they can be better. That's, that's, and the fulfillment I've gotten of being able to work with a person and I can understand why you pulling back or not being involved anymore. It must be a big difference. That making a change to someone's life, even if it's this big, geez, that's huge. 
even if it's that big, even if it's a minuscule difference, if we can play a tiny role in someone making that transition from mm. the culture of addiction and the madness to a culture of recovery and sanity, safety and sanity and soberness, that's a phenomenal thing. The, the youth of today, like the wokesters, the, the, <laughs> all the genders and whatever the case is, right? I mean, I remember from us growing up, like when I was at school, when you heard someone did drugs, it was like, what the, what the hell did you hear? Drugs doing? It was like a secret. And then it scales up and up and up. Today's youth, 13 through 21. Problem? I think it certainly increased when when I was at school for a while, I, I was the only kid that was using in the way I was. Uh, the other guys that were using with me seemed to have the ability to back off. Like weekend here, weekend there type thing. Yeah, whereas I was pressing ahead all day, every day, and I began to hang out with people that were a lot older and had a lot more severe addiction, so I could yeah, learn I from them. Um, and because where, where, where I'm kind of going is, when I was a kid, I would play with people. We would go climb a fucking tree. I would fall out of the tree. We'd play rugby. We'll get together, drive our bikes. The, the amount of social interaction, one-on-one, -on -one, that a lot of the younger generation has is nothing like what we had. Yeah. If they don't go to school, they're in their mom's basement playing Fortnite or whatever game they play these days. I wonder if that has an effect on it, that they're now getting a different kind of stimulus that they're going to jack into the metaverse yeah. very soon yeah. and not worry about stuff like that. I mean, I, I don't know, just a... The, the, the social structure that these kids are working is not the same we had. Multiply that by 400 thanks to COVID. Mm -hmm. So I think the social cohesion mm. and the stuff that you had growing up is... I don't think the kids have, have that now. Can we say that this um, metaverse artificial plug-in is a substitute that is of value? I don't know. There's a bit... Because there's two industries with this whole VR, AR, metaverse thing that is going to fly and that has in the past pro is education and porn. Because now you can jack oh in. Oh, wow. I'll find this because now you can, going home for a you second, can jack in. Now. Yeah, man, sorry, I'm just going to go get my <laughs> Oculus. Is you can now sit in your basement, you put this VR thing on, you get these gloves, which is tactile, so I can feel like I'm picking up the glass. What? So now you can go and do things that you're not allowed to do in the real world and you can live it. Talk about a potential addiction. People are already addicted to Instagram. Sure. Now you're gonna have this, I mean, it's scary. Yeah. That's 4D. Scary. 4D, like surround sound, bass, whatever. It's, it's mad. It's the mad. It's a big change. Yeah. I wonder if our parents 40 years ago sat around and said, oh my God, the advent of TV. Oh, and scope was banned here by the apartheid. Jeez, remember scope? So it yeah, had little geez. stars on the nipples, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. That was still banned. mag from when I was like ten. So can you imagine some some of the parents go, "Oh my God, scope's coming into the country, and all these adverts for alcohol on the TV, or oh my God, <laughs> look at these skimpy little bikinis on the beach. The world's coming to an end." And are we not in the same position three or four decades later, saying this? Oh my God, the metaverse and the tactile gloves and the mm. you know, in forty years' time, the kids will be saying something mm. else. Look. We are and have been living through the biggest way that, the biggest change in the way humans communicate. 12 years ago, iPhone didn't exist. 12 years? Air, it's 2007, I think. So 13, 14, whatever. Yeah. Airbnb, Uber, Instagram, Facebook. Google. I mean. Google. 
So we're living through the biggest way that humans communicate. Podcasts? Yeah. The biggest change ever since we fucking drew little pictures on a cave wall. We've never changed this much in such a short time. Nobody knows what to expect. We can't. We cannot know what comes next. Everybody can project. Oh no, MySpace. Remember MySpace? Oh my god. <laughs> never gonna die. Oh really? <coughs> really? Facebook came along. Oh no, Facebook's the bomb, now Instagram. This will never change. My dad did never want to put his credit card details into the internet. They're gonna steal it. Now he's sending fucking kissing emojis. <laughs> <laughs> it's never changed. But, and, and I'm wondering the information flow. Do you think the kids today, they know more about this thing we're talking about? Or is there enough other things to draw them away? Because if someone wants information, it's there and so it's it to a bad degree that there's good and bad advice. Because like, I googled a little bit just on kind of the change, hey? Changes, yeah. Yeah, changes. And then you look at other things, you can find directions. Because there's a, so, so if you Google, google.com, they, there's obviously Google is a beast, it's a monster, it's very evil. They give you things. If you use a different browser, search things come up that do not come up in Google. Sure. And I, so I use DuckDuckGo. Yes. Because it's an open thing. Yeah. And the things that come up is just frightening. And DuckDuckGo is, DuckDuckGo is not tracking you at all. Mm -mm. So which there's, is, there's Brave, which is the browser. Yes. And then DuckDuckGo is the search. You combine those and it keeps track of the top. Blocked 4,000 things in the last two minutes. It's ridiculous. But my searches look different. It looks different. So I don't know. This information flow for the kids today. YouTube. Like, you can go into YouTube and look for how do I fight addiction, for example, yeah. on YouTube. Within four or five videos, you could be in a place where it's a movie that makes it look cool. Scary. Information overload, yeah. There's so much of it out there. Mm. And I don't know if, like you're saying, these folks become addicted to Instagram or Facebook and this Oculus 4D stepping into the world where you could, you know, if you want to feel what it's like to murder someone or to rape someone. This is, but these there's been movies about this. Really? Sci-fi movies like like Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever, where the drug of the time in like 2149, the drug of the time is you jacking into this world and then you go and find a drug dealer and they will give you like a chip or something that you plug into your headset and you can then do exactly that. Go murder someone, wow. go have sex with Tom Cruise or whatever your thing is. But that's the drug of the time, is that, that rush. The experience has become the drug. And if people <laughs> rewire their brains and become addicted to that, then all sorts of other chemicals, drugs, alcohol, mm. behavioral stuff has to f follow suit. Unless this metaverse becomes so big that it can keep you occupied and keep your interest for but, but Not are, enough. are we devolving then? Because now you're not getting physical activity, exercise. You're sitting at home with this thing jacked in. You might walk on the spot, which then you're running somewhere else. So you're going to die from a body giving in, but you climbing mountains and I don't know. It's, it's I had an interesting theory where so so now you're going to jack into the metaverse. Okay, you put your stuff on and in you go. You're going to see other people in the metaverse. How do we know that it's not? aliens yeah. jacking into the same metaverse now we're conversing with someone completely different or it's your wife in the next room yeah this could be 
but you're cheating because now I'm going to see this, but it's, it's, it's frightening. It would be astonishing if you're cheating with each other and you never tell each other and it goes on for decades. Is it then wrong? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. it's like, it's bizarre. It's just, there's so many things that's changing in our lives, in the way we consume, in the way we create. Everything's different. And the aliens checking in is an interesting concept because how much could, you, you know, for one of a conspiracy theory, the... <laughs> the people who want to control us yep. feed us a certain set of environments and information 100%. in that in that um, world yeah. that keeps us going in a certain direction mm. it's a friend of mine's recently bought property in the metaverse no ways yes how they, much um, I think they paid about 300,000 rand for it what's that in dollars 20,000 18, 20,000 dollars so if you go on the sandbox it's like as far as I understand, the sandbox is like the world, the metaverse world. You look at it, it's a map, and there's little blocks, and you can buy them. There's a guy, Snoop Dogg, bought, he basically bought property in the metaverse and had some, I don't know how this works, a designer recreate his mansion in the metaverse. The property next doors to his in the sandbox, this metaverse thing, some bloke bought for $450,000. Now he's Snoop Dogg's neighbor. <laughs> you can't make this shit up. It's like, no, it, it's so. Who's taking the money, Mark Z Zuckerberg? So, so well, it depends on who because the sandbox is like an NFT, non-fungible token. So, <laughs> you've seen these these crazy ape or whatever the hell is yeah. digital art, and so as an NFT, you can buy your property. It goes. It's blockchain, so you buy it with four or five Ethereum. Now, this conversation, imagine this two years ago. I wouldn't know what the fuck's going oh, on. Fuck, yeah. I still oh. don't know what's going on. <laughs> no, it's madness. So you don't have Bitcoin, hey? In the city, me? Yeah. I bought 10 for 510,000 in 2017. And you still have them? I sold a lot of them. That's I a pity. got out at about 20,000 with a whack of them, yeah. Okay. But, um, so in the sandbox, is there like prime real estate that's on the ocean front? Or is it all just... I think it's, as far as I know, I think it's defined by who you are close to. Like Adidas, Nike, Gucci, they've all bought property there. So Gert, um, one of my friends, yes, he's a designer. So he bought, because he's going to open a store in the metaverse. But hang on, hang on, see, so he opens a store. I go into the metaverse. You jack in or whatever it's called. Yeah. And I walk into a store with my gloves and my Oculus and my headset. Yeah, and I walk your, into your, your avatar goes in there, yeah. My so, avatar goes in. Am I walking as I experience yeah. my avatar? No. Yeah. Say again. Am I walking yeah, as I can. experience my... Yeah. So I'm walking and the avatar walks. Yeah. So now, think about it. Do you, I don't, do you play games? Like Very few. I used to play a lot. Yeah. I don't even understand what the... But, but in a game, for example, you can buy a new gun or a new uh, outfit. Those yeah. are NFTs. So if you bought, for example, a new armor for your, your player... You paid, for example, $200 for that. Or, okay, I hope not. $2. And you get the new thing. Nike has already... Because now we all can have an avatar. Instagram's doing it already. You can create your avatar. In Facebook as well. So you look like you now design... And there he is now. Oak standing there. Nike has already released sneakers just in the metaverse that you can buy for your digital self. Only in the metaverse. You can't get them here. It exists already. I'm too old for this shit. But it's going to happen in your lifetime store. 
Adidas, Gucci, all of these places. Justin Bieber has done a concert in the metaverse. So he, obviously, you know, so he was wherever he was. And he wears one of those suits with the little dots and, like, verize it. So then, his, his avatar is doing a concert in the metaverse. We jack in. So you sit at your house, I sit at my house, I put my thing on, and we can go and look at Justin Bieber form. But I pay more to be seated up front than someone who's back in the Probably, yes. Gods. Yeah. And then you get something like, I think it's Jason Derulo and a couple of other guys. They created a club. So in the metaverse, there's a cl- nightclub. Right? And they, what do they call it? Um, party to earn. So the more you visit the club, obviously pay something to get in. All digital, crypto, Bitcoin, whatever the case is, the more you earn. It, it, it's... And this isn't a movie. This is happening today. <laughs> I'm too old for it. And that's what, I mean... Jerry, really, I mean... So, but people are going to be addicted from, from a stimulus point of view. Yeah. Without putting anything in. Or it's going to rewire their brains. Just, yeah. Now, if we pull someone from the metaverse 10 years from now, it's not going to be human like us. It's, not, it's going to look the same, maybe a bit fatter because they're not doing anything. But it, it's bizarre. Well, across the history of time, we've, we've adapted and morphed into what we need to be in our bodies. Like, what, what's going to happen in 100 years' time? Because exactly as you say, the kids aren't out there running. And I suppose it's some schools are playing a lot of sport and stuff. Yeah. But I see there's, there's two things. So if you look at your pinkies, right? And then at the back of your neck. So how do you hold your phone? Like this. So you balance it. So I've got my pinky underneath on the three so I can type with my thumb. I've actually begun to feel that on my pinky. Yeah. A lot of the younger kids, you can see it's almost like, like bent. Evolution. And then, I don't know what it's called, but on the, one of the top vertebrae, yeah, stretch out. Because they're here all the time, there's this little growth that's starting to happen at the back because this is how we work. The kids are... It, it's... And this is, you can go and check it out, the pinkies, it's like a little bend, because that's where you balance your phone all day long. That's freaky. Yeah. So this weekend, stay off your phone. We <laughs> <laughs> got plans for the weekend? Yeah, I'm going to paddle tomorrow. Uh, where do you paddle? The dam at Yamarencha. Oh, right. I've seen the guys there in the morning. Yeah, you must come. It's such a jewel there. Good fun. Do you have to have a paddle or can you rent? Uh, you can rent, so you can rent a sup, which is cool. Because I want to do a trip down the Danube, I want to take a month out oh, and a sup and maybe a little dry pack on the front of the boat with a tent and some clothes and some other shit. And so there's some parts where you can camp along the riverside and then you just coast down and stop for lunch and perhaps rent a bicycle and go around the town then Mate, come back and stand in, in the Airbnb Orange River. that night. Yeah? The Orange River does that. Yeah, well, the Orange River, I did that in a, in a canoe in 1999. Like, canoe stop, the canoe stop, canoe stop. I haven't seen it in a long time. The water's apparently full of E. coli and all sorts Ooh, of shit. No, no. The Danube sounds nice. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, thank you for your time. Thank you, Squire. Good fun. We'll do it again sometime. Top, man. Appreciate it, man. Cheers. Good up. stuff. Cheers, guys.